Well, good morning again, everybody. Hope everyone's doing well. Uh, so as Keith already said, last week we had our baptism ceremony, uh, which was, I don't know, I was, I was riding the high from that for the rest of the week. That was such a blessing uh, to be able to experience that. And uh, if you were at that ceremony, or if you were at the service beforehand, uh, hopefully you remember hearing the words of Jesus' Great Commission which you heard again uh, in the video that was played just a little while ago. Uh, Jesus' last words in the Gospel of Matthew before he ascended into heaven, so this is after his resurrection, this is what uh, he left his disciples by saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, last week we emphasized these words because they include Jesus' command to baptize, uh, which of course is what we were doing. But what I want to recognize this week is a different aspect of the commission, which are those words, make disciples. Jesus picked 12 disciples, but he never intended his disciples to remain limited just to those 12. He expected that his disciples would make more disciples, and those disciples would make more disciples, and so on, and on and on, until, as Jesus says, the very end of the age. And by that he means, essentially, until I come again. And that's how we know that this command wasn't just for those original 12 disciples, but it's also for any of us who consider ourselves to be followers of Jesus today. Because the age is not over. Uh, we're still in it now. And so followers of Jesus today should still be seeking to fulfill this command to make disciples. Uh, one way of putting it is part of what it means to follow Jesus is to encourage other people to follow Jesus. And I want us to notice the specificity in Jesus' command in the Great Commission. You know, it's not just go and do nice things for people of all nations, although we should do that. And it's a more specific command than just go and love people of all nations, although that too is absolutely something that we should do. Um, it's go and make disciples of all nations. In other words, go and help people make me their teacher, right? Uh, go into other lands, go into other cultures, Go into places where people speak other languages and eat foods that you think are weird. Go there and help them to see me, a Middle Eastern Jew, as their instructor, their authority, and their model of living. Now, we have a couple of words that we use to describe the process of helping someone to go from not being a disciple of Jesus to being a disciple of Jesus. And those words are things like evangelizing, uh, witnessing, or proselytizing. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but in our culture today, those words don't have very positive connotations. Saying someone was proselytizing is kind of like saying somebody had spinach in their teeth. Uh, it's a social faux pas. And trying to convert someone to your faith is often seen as rude or arrogant or disrespectful. So here's an example of that. Uh, at the University of Connecticut, just down the road, 
uh, there is a group that gets together a couple times a year that is comprised of faith leaders from all the various uh, religious communities, both on campus and in the area. So if, if there is a religious community that is recognized by the university, they meet occasionally in this, in this group. So it's an interfaith group. And I remember that back when I worked for Crew Ministries, which is a, a campus ministry at UConn, uh, a coworker of mine would frequently go to these meetings and he told me that at one meeting, several of the faith leaders in attendance had tried to convince the whole group to agree to what they called a no proselytizing policy. In other words, they wanted everybody in the group to agree that we will not ever try to convert anyone uh, to our faith. Now, thankfully that proposal was not accepted by the group, least of all by my coworker, who, if I remember correctly, he explained something like, well, look, we want to be respectful of people and their right to believe whatever it is they're going to believe, but sharing our faith is part of our faith. I mean, that's what Jesus told us to do. It's a huge theme throughout the New Testament, so we can't, in good conscience, agree to a policy that would forbid us from doing that. So the proposal wasn't able to pass, but I want us to see that the fact that it was proposed in the first place is a reflection of the way that many people view evangelism in our culture. In the eyes of many people, even many people who would call themselves faith leaders, trying to persuade people to join your faith is seen as a social faux pas. It is inappropriate, disrespectful, intolerant. And yet, Jesus' last words before he ascended to heaven included that command, make disciples. And so this is one of those areas where Jesus calls us to do something that is countercultural. And I want to acknowledge that could be hard for us. That could be hard for me. But that just makes it all the more important for us to remind ourselves of this calling that we have, make disciples. And that means evangelizing. That means actively trying to introduce people to Jesus. Now, can we reduce the feedback a little bit? Is there anything we can do about that? Okay. All right. Um, okay. Now, I realize you might be sitting here right now and thinking, uh-oh. Is he going to try to guilt me into knocking on strangers' doors? Or try to get me to stand on the street corner with a sign that says, repent? Or uh, try to get me to hand out cheesy tracks wherever I go? And if that's what you are afraid of, I want to reassure you, I'm not about to do any of those things. Jesus said, go and make disciples. Uh, what he didn't say was, here is exactly how you need to do that. And I think that was very intentional on Jesus' part, because remember, he's calling us to go and make disciples of all nations, right? And what's effective in drawing people to Jesus in a particular time, a particular place, a particular culture, isn't always going to be as effective in a different time, place, and culture. You know, missionaries will often spend years learning about a particular culture just so they can effectively communicate the gospel within that culture. So when Jesus says, make disciples, but he doesn't specifically say, and here is exactly the formula for doing that, I think we should hear in his words an invitation to, to get creative. 
and an invitation to be guided by the Holy Spirit in that creativity. And although the Holy Spirit does sometimes work through people who knock on strangers' doors and say, excuse me, sir, do you have a moment to talk about Jesus Christ? Uh, I would not say that is a particularly creative way of making disciples, nor is it a culturally sensitive one. So again, I'm not saying that never works. I'm just saying not particularly creative, not particularly culturally sensitive. So unless you feel particularly inspired by the Holy Spirit to try and make disciples in that way, that's not what I would recommend. That said, though, at the same time, I do think that we as the church need to be encouraged to be a bit more risky and a bit more bold and a bit more intentional when it comes to sharing our faith, especially those of us who are shy about it. Now, what I'm about to say here, I can't prove. This is just my intuition, so take it for what it's worth. But I think a lot of us who are especially shy about sharing our faith, one of the reasons we're shy is because we possess a lot of self-awareness and we have a lot of concern about how we come across to other people. And if we could just get over our fear a little bit, those qualities are actually really good qualities when you're talking to people and trying to share your faith. It's good to be self-aware. You know, it's good to care about how other people are perceiving you and to be aware of that. And I think what happens sometimes is that those of us who care least about being uh, self-aware, those of us who, who maybe need a little um, bit of uh, growth in empathic skills and sensitivity are the most outspoken and the most bold about sharing our faith. And meanwhile, those of us who possess a lot of the qualities that are especially good for sensitive communication stay more quiet. And, and what we need is to embolden those of us who are, who are shyer to speak up more. And maybe some of those who are speaking a lot need to be encouraged to maybe rein it in a bit more and think more about how can I be empathetic in my presentation. Just my opinion, what I've observed, but either way, I think those of us who are shy do need to be encouraged to be a bit more bold. So, um, all that to say, we're going to be talking over the next couple weeks about sharing our faith. How can we be intentional about doing that and how do we do it in a spirit-led, creative, and sensitive way. And I think that a great place to start in order to learn how to do that is by looking at a passage where the Apostle Paul does just that. So if you have a Bible, uh, turn to Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16. Acts 17, starting in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. All right, let's stop for a moment there. Paul sees that the city is full of idols and he is distressed. He's actually greatly distressed. Because it bothers Paul that people are worshiping things other than the true God. It bothers Paul that people's understanding of what the divine is like is being shaped by these idols, 
these lifeless statues of gold and silver and stone. Now, people today aren't especially likely to be worshiping literal statues of gold and silver and stone. Uh, but anytime someone worships something other than the true God, they're worshiping an idol. Technically, false gods are idols. And when people do that, that should distress us. Uh, now, our distress should not lead us to be ruder and sensitive, right? But the fact that people are worshiping things other than the true God should bother us. Right? It should do something in us where we feel a kind of pain over the fact that people are not worshiping the true God. The way I would put it is good evangelism starts with genuine distress over the fact that the true God is not being worshipped. Both for God's sake, because he deserves that worship, and also for the people's sake, because when you worship the, the wrong thing, it destroys you. When we worship anything other than the true God, eventually, that thing lets us down. So, Paul feels this distress, and it motivates him to do something. Uh, it says that he reasoned in the synagogue and in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Now, there's a couple things I want us to notice there. One is Paul's audience. It says that he was talking to people who happened to be there, right? Just happened to be there, not people that he had developed a long-standing friendship with, just people who were there. Now, you might be thinking, oh, no, so I am just supposed to go up to the stranger in Walmart and say, can I talk to you about Jesus? Well, maybe, perhaps someday the Holy Spirit will lead you to do that, uh, but I don't think that's a good imitation of what Paul was doing here. Uh, and I say that because notice that it says that he talked to people in the synagogue and in the marketplace. Now, the synagogue, of course, was the Jewish place of worship. So going there and talking to people about God and faith, that would not be unusual at all, right? Uh, and what you might find surprising is that the same would be true of the Athenian marketplace. Uh, the Athenian marketplace was not just a place that you went to get food, like we would think of the market, uh, but it was actually the place for public debating. It was the place where elections were held. Uh, it was the place where trials were held. And of course, it was the place where things were bought and sold. So uh, the way I would put it is it's, the marketplace was kind of like the ancient equivalent of the courthouse, the town hall, Facebook, Reddit, Quora, uh, and Amazon all at once. And so if you walked into that marketplace and you started to share religious or philosophical ideas, that would not be especially unusual. So even though Paul was talking to strangers, he was doing it in context where it was not especially bizarre to be doing that. And like Paul, I think we also should be open to talking to people about the gospel who we don't really know, people that we're not particularly close to, people that we haven't had this long history of friendship with, but we should look to do it in contexts where it's not especially bizarre. Uh, for example, in our culture today, even though it is bizarre to walk up to a stranger in the supermarket or, or in Walmart and say, hey, let's talk about faith, it's not that strange to do that to someone, say, in a church or in an interfaith discussion group or in a university philosophy classroom, uh, 
or on many online discussion forums that exist where people congregate to talk about that sort of thing, or even in a book club, if a book club ha has a book that raises issues of faith, uh, which honestly, most books that people care about raise issues that can be related to faith because they're dealing with questions of ultimate significance. Um, so what I encourage us to do is seek out contexts where conversations about things like faith, God, the purpose of life, right and wrong, where those conversations don't have to be forced because they're already happening. And then join in and be intentional about what you say there. The other thing I want us to notice is what Paul did when he talked to his audience. Uh, notice that very special verb right there. It says he reasoned with them. He reasoned with them. Not just he preached at them, but he reasoned with them. And that verb suggests that there was a back and forth conversation. Uh, it suggests that Paul tried to make points and provide evidence for what he was saying. When you reason with someone, you know, let's reason together. You don't just say, this is the way it is, that's that, and I will not tolerate your questions. <laughs> you know, when you reason with someone, you try to appeal to a common sense that you both have. So, you know, I think that's a good model for us to follow. When we share our faith, we should reason with people rather than just preaching at them. Okay, continuing on. In uh, verse 18. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with them. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Okay, I want to stop and make a quick point here. because this is, this is interesting to me. Notice, Paul was talking to Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Now, perhaps you've been thinking, I don't know this for sure, but perhaps you've been thinking, well, the reason Paul was able to talk to strangers about faith and have any hope at all of convincing them is because it was a different world. People were superstitious. People were primitive. Uh, people could be e easily persuaded. This is before the Enlightenment. Now, that might have been true in some places, but not in Athens. And not if you're talking to Stoic and Epicurean philosophers. Uh, because actually, if you read about what the Epicureans and the Stoics believed, a lot of it uh, is, is very common to what many people who would identify as liberal intellectuals believe today. Uh, so take the Epicureans, for example. Uh, they identified as materialists for one thing, which means they believe the only things that actually exist are physical things. Uh, so they denied the existence of the spiritual. They also attacked concepts of superstition and divine intervention. So they didn't necessarily deny that gods or God exists, but they denied that gods or God have any influence in what happens in the world. There's no divine intervention. They also rejected the idea of the afterlife. They said, this life is all you get. And related to that belief, uh, they concluded that the greatest good that you can seek is, is your own pleasure. That, that is the point of life. Now, to be fair to the Epicureans, 
they didn't just say, oh, that means you should just live in reckless, hedonistic, wild living. They actually said, well, the best way to attain pleasure is through moderation. So I want to give them some credit there. But still, they believe the purpose of life is the pursuit of personal pleasure. And after that, there's nothing. Okay? And so you look at these beliefs right here, they are so similar to uh, the atheistic humanists of today. I don't know if you're familiar very much with humanism or atheism, but really that's, that is precisely the sort of things that you would hear atheistic humanists say today, uh, of which there are many in our universities. In fact, many people who identify as humanist today uh, like to put an Epicurean epitaph on their graves, uh, which says, I was not, I was. I am not, I do not care. As for the Stoics, uh, they were what we would call today pantheists. So they saw everything as being a part of God. Um, so they did not believe in a personal God who is transcendent over all of creation, a God who is separate from the creation, who created it, right? But they, they just believed that if you kind of put everything together, you call that God. And when I think of um, this philosophy, it reminds me a lot of what you hear people saying who regard themselves as spiritual today, spiritual but not religious. You know, they, uh, they say things like, well, we are all a part of God and all is one, you know, that kind of thing. And that's very much like Stoic philosophy. So the point I'm trying to make is that the people Paul was talking to were a lot more like people today than we might initially think. A lot more like the people we might encounter down the road at Yukon. And yet, Paul still reasoned with them, right? He still stepped into their world and made an effort to introduce them to Jesus Christ. Now, when he did that, it's not like everybody was just amazed and converted, right? Some of them said, what is this babbler trying to say? But if we read a little further, we find that some of them were curious. So moving on to uh, more in verse 18. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So some people are interested enough in what Paul is saying that they, they want him to go and talk more about it in another setting. They bring him to this place called the Areopagus, which is this rocky outcropping in Athens that people would sometimes gather at to have these kinds of conversations. And I like how the author adds that little editorial note uh, about the Athenians. They spend their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Basically, Athens is like a, a never-ending TED conference. Uh, everyone's just talking about ideas. And so Paul has been encouraged now to give his own presentation at, at the TED conference. And you know what? Sometimes that is what happens. When we put ourselves out there in the marketplace, it then ends up leading to a better opportunity to explain our faith in greater detail. 
Um, those of you who have been around for a while, you've heard me talk some about the Yukon Freethinkers, uh, which is a, a group primarily of, of Epicureans, I mean, atheist humanists and agnostics at Yukon. And uh, when I worked in campus ministry, uh, a Christian student and I would frequently go to this group and we would engage in the discussions there and we would try to share an alternative viewpoint. In some meetings we'd go there, we wouldn't even say anything. Some we, some we would engage more. Um, but that was kind of like our equivalent of the marketplace. And so we were going to the marketplace on a weekly basis. And after really several years of doing that, one day the president of the club came to us and said, hey, how about you guys have a night where you just present and you try to convert us? Basically, you know, we, we were given the kind of opportunity that Paul was given there. You know, hey, well, Paul, come to the Areopagus. We don't, you know, you, your ideas seem crazy, but how about you, you present them some more? We'll listen some more. But, you know, we never would have gotten that opportunity if we hadn't put ourselves out there in the first place, if we hadn't actually gone to the marketplace and engaged, right? But then that opportunity was opened. So, anyway, more encouragement. Be willing to put yourself out there because you never know where it's going to lead. So let's uh, look at what Paul says when he's given this opportunity. So starting in verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands, as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Okay, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of time left this morning, but for the rest of the time that we have, I want to suggest six tips for sharing our faith that we can learn from Paul's example in this sermon. We're going to go through these quickly. Six tips that we can learn from the Areopagus sermon. Okay, number one, don't get angry. 
Remember at the beginning of this passage, it said that Paul was greatly distressed about the worship of idols. I don't know about you, but when I am greatly distressed about something that someone, someone is doing or believing, it is so easy for me to get really angry about that. I mean, think about the last time you were greatly distressed over somebody's political views. How easy was it to engage with them without getting angry, right? There's this, this link between being distressed and getting angry. But even though Paul is greatly distressed, you don't hear anger in that sermon. He does offer correction, right? But you don't hear anger. He doesn't start by saying, men of Athens, you're all fools. Your idols are stupid and worthless. I mean, how stupid can you be to, to bow down before something made of stone? I mean, that's just ridiculous. Like, what's wrong with you? Right? No, he actually has a radically different approach, which leads to the second thing that we can learn from the Areopagus sermon, which is affirm the good. Affirm the good. Paul starts by saying, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. You're very religious. You see what he's doing there. He's affirming the people's desire to worship, even though he's greatly distressed by what they're actually worshiping. Right? He's, he's actually finding a way to put a positive spin on something that actually really bothers him a lot. It bothers him that people are worshiping idols, but at the same time, he recognizes that the religious sense that people have, that it's important to worship, that is something that should be affirmed. And then, similarly, usually when we disagree with somebody, there's something that we can still find about what's motivating them or what they're thinking that we can affirm and agree with. And if we can start a conversation with someone by leading with that point of agreement and by affirming them, genuinely affirming them in that, then that helps to lower people's defenses and it opens them up to hear more of what we have to say. So affirm the good. That's what Paul does. But of course, he doesn't just affirm what they already believe. He doesn't stop there. He then takes the step of actively proclaiming truth, which is the third tip. Proclaim truth. Simple one. Uh, in this brief sermon, Paul emphasizes several ideas that are at the core of his faith, but they're also things that most of the Athenians would not agree with. There are things that went against the culture. Right? He proclaims that there is one God. Right? Most of the people there were polytheistic, but he still proclaims there is one God. He proclaims that God is a personal being, right? God is not an impersonal force or just the amalgamation of all of creation. God is a personal being. And as I explained earlier, that's uh, something that the Stoics certainly didn't agree with, right? Um, Paul proclaimed that God is ordering and directing, directing history, right? That he is intervening in the world, right? And that's something that the Epicureans definitely disagreed with. Uh, he proclaims that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Stoics didn't believe in the afterlife, right? And actually, that very thing that he says is something that he gets sneered at for, right? So some of the people sneered because he was talking about the resurrection of the dead. Right? That's ridiculous. Right, so the point I'm trying to make is Paul boldly proclaims the truth, even though he's proclaiming things that people in that culture are going to find ridiculous or that they're going to disagree with, right? 
He doesn't shy away from conflict and just stick to the points of agreement. He ventures out beyond that. He starts by affirming the truth. Uh, he starts by affirming what they agree on, but then he goes on, he proclaims truth, and at times, truth that is counter to the culture. Another thing Paul does, and I think this is really important, this is the one that I'm going to hang on just a little bit longer, which is Paul assumes that God is already working among them, and he proclaims that to them. God is already working among them, and he proclaims that to them. Uh, hear what he says again in verses 26 through 28. These are actually some of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. These are right up there for me with uh, 1 Corinthians 13. I love these verses. Paul says, From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. See, what Paul is saying here is that God has ordered the world such that every person has a chance to seek him and find him. And that means there is no place that you can go on this planet where God is not already at work drawing people to himself. Right? Because the places and times that people live have all been arranged by God so that people might seek him and perhaps find him. So when Paul speaks to the Athenians, he doesn't assume that he's bringing God to a place where God wasn't already. Right? Paul speaks to them as if they have actually already encountered God, but they need someone to help them to understand what they've already encountered. You know, when we talk to people about our faith, we should do it with a confidence that God has already been talking long before we showed up to have that conversation. You might remember that about a month ago, I spoke on Elijah and the Whisper uh, from Kings. And uh, if you weren't here and you don't remember, I don't have enough time to explain it, but if you remember it, <laughs> um, I wanted to remind us of that because I want to encourage us to try to trust that when we talk to people, God has already been whispering to them throughout their entire lives. Okay, we want to trust that he has been whispering and he will continue to whisper. And part of, of, of making disciples, of evangelizing, is encouraging people to listen to the whisper of God. You know, if God really does order the world so that everyone has a chance to seek him and find him, then I think he's whispering to everyone. I remember once I was in the student union at UConn and I was having a conversation with an atheist student about faith. And he was a really smart kid, uh, very sharp. And he said, I just can't believe in Christianity. It just doesn't make sense to me. Uh, I don't think there's enough uh, evidence for it. And there was another Christian with me participating in the conversation. And I saw that he got visibly upset at the student. And he said, with a little bit of anger in his voice, he said, well, faith is a gift. Uh, you can only believe it if God gives that gift to you. And the student said, well then, I guess we've reached an impasse. And that was the end of the conversation. And I remember being so sad that that was where that conversation ended. Because what my Christian friend had implied, whether he meant to or not, 
was that God was choosing to withhold the gift of faith from him. What he was basically saying was, you don't believe? Well, I guess God just doesn't feel like giving you the gift of belief. It's too bad. That is a conversation killer. It is a conversation killer. It was a conversation killer. And what those words probably did was make that student feel like, well, I guess if God is real, God doesn't care about me. Um, and he probably also felt like we probably don't think God cares about him because we think that God hasn't given him the gift of faith, that God is choosing not to do that. You know, how much better might that conversation have been if my friend had assumed, like Paul, that God had already orchestrated things such that this student, this young man, was being reached out to by God, that he really did have a chance to reach out and find God. You know, what if my friend had assumed that God had been whispering to this young man throughout his entire life, and that the gift of faith was not something that was being withheld from him, but something that was being offered? You know, at the very least, I think that conversation would have lasted longer. And at best, I think that the student's heart would have been more open to the work of the Holy Spirit at the end of the conversation. And, uh, at the very least, I think we also would have been following Paul's model here. Finally, uh, two more quick points to make. Number five, refer to things familiar to make your point. Refer to things familiar to make your point. Hopefully you notice that there is at least one point where Paul quotes an Athenian poet. Right? Uh, he says in verse 28, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Any time that we can affirm the truth that is already familiar to someone uh, who we're talking to, I think that's worth doing. You know, you may find yourself talking to somebody who has no interest in the Bible, um, but maybe they love Lord of the Rings, or they love the Chronicles of Narnia, or, or Harry Potter, or something like that. Now, none of those things are Holy Scripture, but all of them contain, at least in parts, ideas and values that are affirmed in Scripture. Uh, and so when we can show people that something that they already love is affirmed in the Bible, uh, that can help them to be open to more of Scripture. And it helps to build a bridge and connect us to them. And that's what we see Paul doing here. And then finally, one last thing. Uh, offer reasons to believe. Offer reasons to believe. You know, notice... Okay, Paul doesn't end this sermon just by saying, you just have to take my word for it, right? He finishes by saying, he has given proof of this to all men by raising him, raising Jesus Christ from the dead. Okay, he's rooting what he's saying on the authority of a miraculous historical event. He's saying something happened that cannot be explained, and that is why... I have the authority to say these things to you and why you should trust me on them. Now, I realize it's very difficult, actually it's impossible, to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt to somebody that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. But there is a compelling case to be made uh, that that 
event is a historical fact. You can't prove it, but there is a compelling case to be made. And what I want us to take away from what Paul says at the end of the sermon is that offering reasons to believe in what we're saying it should be part of sharing our faith. Uh, we shouldn't just be asking people to believe just because. That's just it. You know, you just have to. That's end of story. We should be willing to take the time to offer support for the things that we're saying. Offer evidence. And one of the main supports that we should be willing to, to offer is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ rose from the dead and he is alive today and living in us. Okay, so... Um, I know we went long this morning. I, I apologize for that. Uh, but this was actually just part one of sharing our faith. So uh, we will be next, back next week uh, to talk about more about what to do and what not to do when communicating the gospel uh, to those who don't know Christ. So stay tuned. Uh, but in the meantime, I encourage us to reflect on Paul's example in the Areopagus. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you that there is uh, no place that we can go on this planet where your Holy Spirit is not already at work. Um, God, we recognize that in humility, and we thank you for the privilege of being the bearers of good news uh, wherever you might call us to go. God, I pray that you would help us to be willing to take steps of faith, to take risks, to share uh, the good news wherever we go. Uh, help us to be intentional about finding context to do that where it is fitting and appropriate. And God, wherever you lead us, I just ask that you give us the words to say, Lord. We, we recognize that our words on their own strength are weak, but through the power of your Holy Spirit, they are strong. And so, Lord, we ask that you would fill us, help us to be distressed when we see that the true God is not being worshipped, and compel us and lead us as we seek to share uh, your truth, uh, the truth, just like Paul did. In Jesus' name, amen.